The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker, I'm seeing that a dunk out. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Cas Mudde. My guest today is Shannon Reed. Shannon is an associate professor in the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. She has published extensively on youth culture and gangs in the U.S. and her latest book, co-authored with Matthew Velasic of Louisiana State University, is Old Right Gangs, A Hazy Shade of White, which has been published by the University of California Press and just came out this month. Welcome to the podcast, Shannon. Thank you for having me. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. First, what was the first sports team you ever supported? So the first sports team would probably be the Washington Capitals, which is the hockey team in D.C. Right. When I lived and worked there, it was really cheap to go, and there were fights (laughs) (laughs) and beer. So that was what drew me into hockey generally. What else do you need? And second, what's your favorite political song? This one's a tough one because... You know, punk and hardcore is so politically driven, but I'd probably have to say Black Me Out by Against Me or When the Rhetoric Dies by Boy Sets Fire. And finally, what is your favorite political book? Like an average person answer it would be Mouse by Art Spiegelman because mm-hmm. that got me into all of this back in mm-hmm. high school and, and my interest in this. But my academic answer is Waquant's Punishing the Poor. I think that was probably a big eye-opener for me about how we treat poverty. So you have a new book out on alt-right gangs. What are the most important alt-right gangs in the U.S. today? What should we think about? So I think we can think about alt-right gangs in two ways. There are the ones we keep hearing about on the news, which is, say, Proud Boys, Adam Waffen Division, Ram, those sort of ones that keep making the news because they are highly visible, getting into um, street fights and showing up at protests, things like that. But I think underneath that, as we've seen with Proud Boys, is that most of those individuals are also associated with local white power gangs. So Boot Boys, Peckerwoods, Nazi Lowriders, So even though we're seeing kind of this idea of this large gang group with some organizational characteristics, the reality is the majority of these youth are probably associated with more local gangs um, and groups in in their neighborhoods. And several of the ones that you mentioned are from California primarily, Mm -hmm. right? And they're also older as Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer are much newer. Yeah. Are for you old rank gangs a new phenomenon or an old phenomenon? It's an old phenomenon that I think has been rebranded. And our purpose in calling the book alt-right gangs versus skinhead gangs or far-right gangs is that those terms have stereotypes already associated with them. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to move away from that. And so there is new elements to them, right? This idea of irony and the means and being in the public eye in a way that has been discouraged with a lot of these local groups and older groups over time because of law enforcement intervention. Right. The, mm-hmm. you, the term alt-right is very much associated with online phenomenon. Yeah. Um, what constitutes an alt-right gang? 
We build upon the Eurogang definition, which defines gangs as any durable, street-oriented youth group whose involvement in illegal activity is part of its group identity. So what we found with this definition is that alt-right gangs are being captured in this, but we aren't able to distinguish them from the broader gang literature. So what we did was we added a, a descriptor piece. So as a subset of the alt-right gang definition, we add in that they are using signs and symbols associated with the alt-right, far-right, or extreme-right. And so I had Christian Picciolini on the show, and he made this interesting remark of how he got into the far right by being in a street alley and being talked on. Then he referenced that today, the internet is kind of a virtual alley. And so I was thinking about that because a key part of being a, a gang is street politics. Is yeah. that literal or can you extend that to the internet? Yeah, so this has been a big debate right now in the gang literature generally. So you have sort of your old school gang researchers who say, if you're not showing up on the street, are you really a gang? Mm -hmm. And the sort of new school gang researchers are saying, well, there is a life that people live online and you can be publicly present in sort of this virtual street. For our definition, I think we kind of are more in the middle you know, if everything you do online has no repercussion in the real world, then how much do we care? And I don't mean that in a derivative way. I mean it in a practical way, a policy okay. way. Yeah. So for us, that street element has to be part of it. But what proportion you're spending on a street corner versus online is a different kind of situation. Because we've seen even with gang members, that idea of gang members just wearing full colors, hanging out on the streets constantly just doesn't exist anymore with mm -hmm. gang injunctions and, you know, sort of really heavy policing. Everybody sort of had to go indoors in different ways. And we're seeing with the gang research, this sort of online component play a much bigger role. So is then not so much the street aspect what separates alt-right gangs from alt-right groups, but the criminal aspect? I think it's the criminal aspect and it's the age aspect. And those things tend to go hand in hand. For us, our argument is, and I think Christian Piccolini talks about this too, a lot of far-right researchers and gang researchers focus so much on this idea of ideology mm -hmm. and the role ideology plays that you are lumping in 14-year-olds and 50-year-olds into one group. And 14-year-olds and 50-year-olds are both probably not as likely to be invested in a true ideology, but they're also not as likely to engage in violence and criminal activity in the same way. Right. So if you focus on that sort of age range, that, you know, 13 to 25 age range that we talk about, you are looking at the age crime curve of, you know, peak <laughs> criminality combined with probably a, a less embedded interest in the ideology. Sort of like Christian said, where he was like, well, the ideology came after. But of course, ideology does play a role in particularly who is targeted. Yeah, absolutely. Although we've seen in the gang literature, and I think we've seen in some of this sort of alt-right gang literature, is that they prey upon themselves most yeah, often. Even if we think of Adam Waffen Division, a lot of their crime, their violence is domestic violence. Yeah. You know, family violence. So yeah, it's not that we want to remove the ideology from the study, but rather use it more as a descriptor than a true definer in why we should be keeping these groups separate. You argue that gang researchers are uniquely situated to help demystify these groups, meaning alt-right gangs. Why is that? 
Gang researchers, because we focus a lot on group dynamics and group behavior and the amplification process that happens when you join this group, we know that you can have delinquent peers and have a lower level of criminal activity than if you join a gang full of delinquent peers. So there's something about joining that gang that changes behavior in a way that is above and beyond the fact that you are just now associating with other delinquents. Mm -hmm. Gang researchers have studied this sort of phenomenon and looked at both group level and individual level risk factors. But because definitionally we are narrower in who we're talking about, we are able to both target studies with this population, but then think about interventions that work for this population. I think part of our criticism of some of the work that's been done is either A, they take small samples and make strong statements from them, or B, we are categorizing a wide swath of individuals into one study. We keep talking about these groups as if we have no idea what to do with them. And the reality is we have been dealing with groups like this. They just don't look like who we imagine gang members to be. I actually noticed that in the book, you don't spend too much time on old right prison gangs which are probably the best example, right, yeah. of, of gangs. And they, of course, got more attention because of American History X. But what American History X also very much shows is that many of those gangs, rather than old right gangs, they're white gangs. And the politics is clearly a secondary issue. The politics doesn't come from Hitler and Mein Kampf, right, but comes, in a sense, from lived experience. Yeah. Again, there's another stereotype that these groups live in the middle of nowhere, right? That mm -hmm. they are kind of country, rural groups. But when we actually look at where these individuals are, they are in cities and they are surrounding cities. So in criminology and sociology, there's that minority group threat theory that as populations sort of shift, the dominant population feels threatened. Yeah. And so you will see comments from skinhead youth and others who say, well, yeah, we had to protect ourselves from the black gang, the Hispanic gang, you know, they're taking over our territory. Because at the end of the day, a lot of this is a numbers game. And that's what happens in prison is mm -hmm. that it becomes a numbers game. Being old and having uh, experienced the skinhead gangs of the late 20th century, they were very influenced by a few cultural markers, right? Most notably the movie A Clockwork Orange and the gang of Alex and his droops. Is there such a cultural reference for contemporary old right gangs, uh, American History X or maybe Fight Club? I think it's the culture of the internet that is what they are grabbing onto. So yeah, I mean, Fight Club comes up, even though it's a misunderstanding of that movie entirely. Matrix comes up again, even though it's a misunderstanding of that movie entirely. As well as the Clockwork Orange, right? Yeah, I mean, all of these things are sort of a, a misunderstanding. But now it's these short memes, it's these short clips, it's these short cultural references like Pepe the Frog. That irony that you only get from sort of these quick memes, I think, is sort of the new cultural touch point for these groups. So let's talk class and gender. Traditionally, gangs in general, and alt-right gangs in particular, are seen as working class, obviously as white, but working class and male. And while women were always part knowing the scene of late 1980s, early 1990s, the vast majority of racist skinheads in the Netherlands, for example, were working class and were male, and definitely of the ones that were active. Is that still the case? 
Well, I think about the working class part. I think the working class part, I would argue, was less true than we thought it was back in the 80s. But it fit a rhetoric that people wanted to hold on to of mm-hmm. somehow being different than their poorer counterparts. When you look at a lot of these youth's life histories, they look a lot like lower socioeconomic status families. You know, I don't think they look as different from their traditional gang counterparts as we want to think they do. I think where you see it is the fact that there's systematic differences in how they are followed through school systems. And when it comes to gender, I mean, gender is an interesting thing. Again, gang databases even now are majority male. And we talk a lot about the hypermasculinity of these groups and this idea that they're young minority males is continually repeated. But when you look at school surveys, you know, 30 to 50% of females are reporting that they're gang members. And that's not showing up in police databases. It's still not really, it's showing up more now in the literature as people follow this up. I wonder if we would see similar things in the alt-right gangs if we stop assuming that it's super male-dominated. The only difference, I think, is, again, I grew up, same as you, with these groups all around me. And because there's sort of that traditional, that trad wife kind of element to it that we don't see in other gangs, it may be a little bit different. I certainly never was interested in being either a sharp or a racist skin because you're basically a coat hanger, like you held somebody's coat at a show, and I didn't feel like doing that. And I know now with Blee's book and Darby, who just put out more female-centric books, I think our image of this may change a little bit. But I do think that right now it seems that there is a more masculine domination in the alt-right gangs than in traditional gangs. But I wonder if that will shift. I'm actually fascinated by this underreporting in the gang database. Are they based on those who are arrested? Nope. They're just stops. And they're not even stops necessarily. In order to enter most gang databases, you have to sort of hit three elements. If you either self-admit to gang membership, have tattoos, somebody else... I don't even think it has to be a confidential informant who's been vetted, but somebody basically says, oh yeah, Cass is in a gang. If you check enough of these boxes, you're in the gang database. Right. And it's very hard to come back out. But then if this underreporting might be, at least in part, also a consequence of the sexism of oh, absolutely. law enforcement, I think, right? They look yeah, at women I mean, and they think that's not a gang member. Oh, 100%. And there's an article that's called like Gun Holders, Ghetto Rats, or Girlfriends, right? And it's all these names for female gang members that are dismissive, right? Oh, they just hold the drugs. Oh, they just hold the guns. You know, that's so-and-so's girlfriend. She's not really important. Both at a research level, which I think we're trying to fix, but at a police level, who is sort of the gatekeeper to a lot of this data, which is its own issue, we are seeing this lack of belief that these are quote-unquote real gang members. And I think we see this with the white power youth as well, with these alt-right gangs, is we know in police departments that there are officers who believe a lot of this stuff, right? Who are not necessarily anti-white power. (laughs) Right. And so if you see a kid, you stop a kid, and maybe they have an Adam Waffen division signs and symbols, or they have a swastika on their jacket or whatever, if you look at that kid and they say, yeah, I'm in a gang, 
this Packer Woods gang. And you as the officer go, no, you're just, you're in a subculture. You're having, it's, it's a phase. It's right. whatever. Then you dismiss them, right? You have, you have made a decision that they are not real gang members because in your head, real gang members are black, brown, whatever. Absolutely. Then you have made a critical decision to push these youth out of the system. And some would say that's good. We don't need more kids in the system. But again, it looks like it's not a problem. And so this is something that has been written about in, in Europe as well for quite a while, particularly in, in East Europe after the fall of the wall. There were pogroms against Roma, for example, and these kids were just seen as kids from the neighborhood, like not far right, because of broad sympathy within law enforcement. And this is something that comes in the book as well. So you're right about the situation in Portland, where the Portland Police Bureau, about which we read a lot in the newspapers these days, yeah as only 32 white people in their gang database, despite the fact that Portland has a very long history of white power groups, and at the moment is ground zero for alt-right gangs like Patriot Prayer and Proud Boys. Is Portland particularly bad, or do you see more often that there is sympathy, if not overlap, between law enforcement and alt-right gangs? Yeah, I think it's definitely more systematic than it being a Portland problem. I think Portland highlights in a stark way this problem because we see this all happening and you go, that this is insane that you have 32 white gang members. <laughs> Look at what is happening. But I think it's much more systematic. I think you're going to find that across most law enforcement agencies. I think it's a combination of a problem of how we continually teach and talk about gangs and how they are trained about gangs and that there are sympathies within these departments. You know, I don't want to come out and say, oh, police departments are pro-white power, but there are certainly elements within police departments who are not actively working to reduce these groups or even keep track. Yeah, and there's a lot of research in Europe which shows that sympathy for far-right parties is far higher within... Yeah, and you'll see three-percenter patches on police officers, and you know, you see these different things, and they may seem minor, but I think they really speak to a deeper deeper issue with policing right now. You're a gang researcher, and I'm a political scientist. (laughs) Are alt-right gangs a political challenge or mainly a law enforcement challenge? I would say they are a juvenile challenge. I think they have to stop being a law enforcement challenge because law enforcement is not properly dealing with them. In the sense that they're a criminological problem, I think they could just as easily be a sociological problem or a political science problem. I think as long as we are clear about who we're talking about, what groups we're talking about, and not focusing so broadly on everybody who's part of the far right, right? We are talking about a very specific subset. And I think all disciplines have important elements to add to that. We just kind of have to stop throwing everybody in (laughs) the same study, the same conversation, the same book or whatever. I mean, I would love to get Health and Human Services who does early childhood education. You know, I think they have a ton of good work intervening with youth in elementary and middle school that I think could be a huge benefit. But we got to stop talking about 40, 50, 60 year olds in the same conversation because they lose interest. True. At the same time, Traditionally, it was quite common with skinhead gangs in the 80s and 90s to constitute for 80-90% of kids between 14 and, let's say, 30 or 25, but having two or three older guys in it, which would be in their 30s and their 40s, often had convictions. 
who yeah. were kind of the leaders. Is that the same in the alt-right gangs? I think it's the same in the alt-right gangs because it's the same in traditional gangs, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about gang membership lasting about a year. Most youth come in and leave in about a year, despite labels and everything else that follows them forever. <laughs> you know, membership is generally short, even though it right. kind of goes back and forth. A lot of, especially the Hispanic gangs, we've seen sort of a multi-generational element to it. So there are, well, you know, so we call the OGs, the original gangsters mm -hmm. who are part of these groups. So it's not that they don't exist and they don't offer important socialization about norms and expectations in these groups. It's that they are generally not the ones on the streets causing violence. And so they play an important role, but intervention-wise... They're probably not our target. Right. In uh, yeah. part because they have nowhere to go, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, they have their criminal convictions. They're settled wherever they are. And they know you're not going to get your third strike at 14. <laughs> yeah. So that's who you want to send out. Yeah. So finally, what is the most important misperception about alt-right gangs? I think the biggest misperception about alt-right gangs is that these are new and we have no idea what to do about them. I think when we watch the news, people look shocked, like, <laughs> oh my God, where do these people come from? Where, what is happening? I, I thought we lived in a post-racial America. <laughs> and I think for those of us who either grew up in these scenes or do this research, they never left, right? They've been around. They sort of disappeared from public consciousness a little bit. They're not on Geraldo Rivera the way they were in the 80s, right? Right. But they never left. And so I think we have to stop thinking of this as a new phenomena and look to the work that's been done and really focus on who we think is preventable and intervenable and do that research. When I started studying this, I was interested in this in college and everybody said no one cares, right? So that was the late 90s. They'd sort of, they'd been sued, war had been sued, they'd gone online, you know. It was sort of a who cares, right? All we care about now is inner city gun violence. Right. And even in the academic level, people just kind of were not interested. And so I think now that people are interested again, because there's violence again, doesn't mean we have to start from scratch. Yeah. I, I think there are changes we can make and important research areas that need to be explored. But this isn't new, right? right. It might be called something a little new, but these are the same things. Yeah. I think that's a general lesson. The world didn't start with Trump. So thank, exactly. you very, thank you very much for coming on the show, Shannon. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. If you want to know more about Shannon Reed, you can follow her on Twitter at, at Morning Shannon, Morning with OU. Her new book, co-authored with Matthew Valisic, is Old Right Gangs, A Hazy Shade of White. And it just came out this month with University of California Press. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please rate and subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and really Melody Baker. I see him down at Dunker. Playing with his beard. No wonder that. Tell to that a little weird.